0: Idalia is now a tropical storm making its way through the Carolinas after slamming Florida and Georgia with intense winds and flooding. It's Thursday, August 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, the Pentagon says it's watching talks between Russia and North Korea that could involve a major arms deal. Also the sour, the Biden administration has dialed back protections for most U.S. wetlands to comply with a recent Supreme Court decision. Even fewer wetlands and headwater streams are going to receive protection now than they had under the Trump administration. We'll look at the impact and the sour.
1: I see, I
2: think, a light at the end of the tunnel, and the tunnel's not that dark anymore, (laughs) you know.
0: Checking in on the more than 800,000 people who've had their student loan debt erased. Sunny, in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The destruction from Hurricane Idalia is now coming to light. The storm, now a tropical storm, left a path of damage, as well as major flooding in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Victoria Hansen with South Carolina Public Radio says near-record
4: flooding occurred in Charleston. The Charleston Harbor reached a little more than nine feet as a dahlia moved across the coast. That's two feet above flood stage and the fifth highest height in nearly 100 years. The highest was during Hurricane Hugo. The harbor spilled over into city streets, making many impassable. While farther south, a storm surge flooded beachside homes in Edisto. But it could have been worse. The coast was spared heavy rain and strong winds. Several tornadoes were reported. The National Weather Service confirms one was responsible for tossing a car into the air on a busy road. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hanson in Charleston. FEMA says 1,500
3: members of its personnel are on the ground in states impacted by Adalia. Hundreds of search and rescue teams have been deployed to provide food and water. Earlier this week, FEMA announced nearly $3 billion in funds to help communities rebuild from the effects of climate change and extreme weather. FEMA's disaster relief fund is running low. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's office says he will see a doctor after he appeared to freeze mid-sentence while answering questions from reporters yesterday. Louisville Public Media's Sylvia Goodman reports a spokesperson says he was feeling lightheaded. He suddenly went silent. He seemed unable to speak. An aide
5: stepped in, tried repeating questions for him, trying to keep things moving along. Um, All told, the senator was silent for about 30 seconds. Um, He eventually did tell his aides that he was
3: fine. He answered a couple more questions before he was led away. In July, McConnell appeared to experience a similar incident. A former Roman Catholic cardinal has been found not competent to stand trial over sex abuse allegations. As NPR's Jason DeRose reports, Theodore McCarrick once held one of the highest ranking positions in the church.
6: The former Cardinal and Archbishop of Washington, D.C., is the only current or former U.S. Cardinal ever to face sex abuse charges. Theodore McCarrick was accused of molesting a 16-year-old boy in Massachusetts in 1974. McCarrick had pleaded not guilty. Now, a judge has dismissed the criminal case after a court-ordered examination found the 93-year-old to have dementia. The church expelled McCarrick from the priesthood in 2019 after an internal investigation. Later, the Vatican issued a report saying that Pope John Paul II promoted McCarrick despite knowledge of the sex abuse allegations. Jason DeRose, NPR News.
3: Stocks finished mixed across Asia today. Markets in China and Hong Kong closed lower while shares were higher in Japan. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa This is WBUR in Boston. Nearly one year after Mary Skipper took over as superintendent of Boston Public Schools, the first reviews of her performance are in. The school committee judged Skipper as effective, but as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that leaves a lot still to be done.
7: Mary Skipper took the reins too late to influence hiring or budgets during her first year in office. Now that she's better established, some committee members expect rapid progress in the year ahead. Several called on Skipper to go from simply informing the community of changes, like school moves or closures, to engaging families as they find solutions. Others requested more bilingual educators and social-emotional support staff, as well as a clear and fair master plan to renovate and consolidate the district's 120-plus schools. The committee's overall rating was similar to Skipper's own self-evaluation. A good start, but the hard work is just beginning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
0: A former Middlesex County sheriff's deputy is under arrest. He's accused of making threats to burn down the Plymouth County Courthouse. Joshua Ford was due in court in March on assault and battery charges. Prosecutors say he sent emails to other police police officers asking them to come armed to his court hearing. They say Ford also made a video in which he threatened to kill the people inside the courthouse. Ford is facing federal charges related to making threats. Dozens of cities and towns will get money from the state to prepare for the effects of climate change. Nancy Cohen reports the goal is to build climate resilience on the local level.
8: Conway got funds to address flooding, Leiden to mitigate wildfires, West Springfield for tree planting, and Chelsea got funds to mitigate heat in elementary schools. Speaking in Stockbridge, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll said, the grants will protect communities in the future.
9: Whether it's farms washing away, coastlines eroding, land drying up, we're going to need collective action and frankly a lot more of it in order to address critical needs.
8: The program is also giving more than two million dollars to the Stockbridge-Munsee Nation to buy 351 acres of their original homelands. For the New England News Collaborative,
0: I'm Nancy Cohen. If you're looking to get on the road this Labor Day weekend, now might be a good time to leave. AAA Northeast says congestion on the highways will start to pick up this afternoon around 2. Spokesperson Mark Shieldrop says it'll get even worse by about 11 a.m. tomorrow.
7: We expect things to be pretty busy, and a lot of that travel has already started in earnest. With the rise of hybrid work and flexible schedules, it seems that many folks are taking additional days surrounding the Labor Day holiday to really extend that three-day weekend into a five, six, or even a seven-day vacation.
0: Shield Drop expects both Monday and Tuesday afternoon traffic to be heavy coming back into the Boston area. For holiday drivers, regular grade gas in Massachusetts averages $3.76 a gallon. That's 26 cents cheaper than a year ago. It's 7.07. We're funded
8: by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have
0: unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. The Red Sox lost to the Astros 7-4 to yesterday at Fenway. Houston swept Boston in the three-game series. The Sox are off today. They'll visit the Kansas City Royals tomorrow. We start a long stretch of dry weather today. It'll be sunny and in the mid-70s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 50s, sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s, sunny and in the 80s for the holiday weekend. It's 63 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
6: WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at
10: waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR
10: News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The White House says Russia is trying to purchase weapons from North Korea. Russia is negotiating potential deals for significant quantities and multiple types of munitions from the DPRK to be used against Ukraine. That's Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., speaking at the U.N. Wednesday. She says U.S. intelligence reveals that Russian defense minister's recent visit to North Korea was part of the effort to set up an arms deal. Thomas-Greenfield called the move shameful and illegal. Any such arms deals would be a serious violation of resolutions the Security Council adopted unanimously and I will mention here that both Moscow and Pyongyang have previously denied these allegations about weapons. For more on this, though, I'm joined now by John Kirby. He is White House National Security Council spokesperson. Good morning. Thank you for joining us.
12: Good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
10: What, what kinds of arms is Russia hoping to get from North Korea? Do we know?
12: Well, we know that at the very least they're interested in artillery ammunition, particularly. But that we also have uh, information that uh, they're seeking other types of munitions uh, to assist their war in Ukraine. And quite frankly, that they're also looking for the raw materials that would go into the components that would go into producing higher-grade weapons. Uh, you know, the, the kinds of electronic components that you might need to to uh, to use to build missiles and rockets and that kind of thing. So it's a it's a wide panoply of capabilities that they're that they're seeking but artillery seems to be the main focus when you look at what's happening Uh, in the east and south of Ukraine right now, it's a gunfight. I mean, it is an artillery duel between the Ukrainians uh, and the Russians predominantly. And so both sides are are working through their inventories of artillery uh, at a pretty fast clip.
10: This isn't the first time we've heard this. In September of 2022, there were reports then that Russia was purchasing munitions and supplies from North Korea. Do we know whether any equipment from North Korea has already been used on the battlefield in Ukraine?
12: What we know for sure, Michelle, is that the artillery shells, uh, thousands of them, uh, were in fact shipped uh, into Russia from North Korea for use uh, predominantly by the Wagner group. What's different now is that we're seeing high level contacts between uh, Russia and North Korea, high level all the way up to Putin's level. Uh, in Kim Jong-un's level and in a more official capacity. What we saw before was you know, arms and ammunition going to Wagner, the private military contractor. Now we're seeing uh, an effort to secure an arms deal between two nation states for use by uh, the Russian military forces. That's what makes this different.
10: Does this tell us something about the state of Russia's military?
12: It certainly does. I mean, it's another example of the degree to which Mr. Putin uh, is becoming desperate to keep his war machine going. Now, I don't wanna overstate that. He still has a vast military capability available to him. He still has the advantage of numbers in terms of troops and aircraft and tanks and all that kind of thing. But uh, the war is taking a toll on his defense industrial base. It's taking a toll on his ability to keep his troops armed in the field. uh, And that's why he's reaching out to countries like Iran for drones and North Korea for artillery ammunition. So it's definitely a sign of desperation definitely a sign that the war is
10: taking a toll on his ability to keep his troops in the field. So before we let you go, I mean, I'm obvious I'm assuming that the incentive for North Korea is, you know, food and other commodities. So but the question here is, you know, President Trump met face to face with North Korea, the North Korean leader in 2018. I think people will remember that. Does the U.S. currently have any leverage with that country that could discourage North Korea from moving ahead?
12: Well, the leverage we're using right now is exposing this when we see it and making it public, getting it out there so that people know what we're seeing and the information that we have and calling it out at the UN as Ambassador Lynn Thomas-Greenfield did yesterday was really important. And of course, we'll continue to work with our UN allies and partners uh, in terms of additional sanctions should they be necessary. There is leverage, economic leverage that can be applied to North Korea, but ultimately North Korea has got to make the right decision here, which is not to make it easier for Putin to kill innocent Ukrainian people.
10: That is White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. Mr. Kirby, thanks so much for your time.
12: My pleasure.
11: Across the southeast, hundreds of thousands of people lack power, roads are littered with storm debris, and fears remain over the possibility of future flooding. All this
10: after Hurricane Idalia tore a path from Florida to South Carolina, tearing off roofs, snapping trees, and turning cars into boats, and the full toll is still being calculated. NPR's Bobby Allen has been following Idalia from Lake City, Florida.
11: Bobby, what can you tell us about uh, the damage left in Idalia's path?
13: Yeah, you know, it was pretty destructive, eh? The storm came ashore along the northern Gulf Coast of Florida with 125-mile-per-hour winds. As it churned, the storm submerged small fishing communities underwater, littered roads with heaps of fallen trees, knocked out power for hundreds of thousands. You know, many of those people and businesses are still in the dark today. And, you know, while many evacuated, others rode it out, like Roxanne Welch. She watched the storm inside her brick home in Lafayette County, and she described it this way.
14: Pretty crazy,
3: pretty shocking. We were watching from the front door and uh, watching some things fall down and then all of a sudden heard a big crash on our roof.
13: And the big crash on the roof was a tree. Driving around this, you know, rural woodsy area that the storms tore through, there were so many snapped and knocked over pine trees everywhere. And uh, it made getting around this windy back roads of this community nearly impossible. Um, but cleanup crews have been working hard to clear debris, and tens of thousands of utility workers have been making repairs to restore power to the region. But still, A, it's going to take some time. OK, now, how deadly has Adalia been so far? So far, not very, which is a huge difference from the last time a major hurricane pounded Florida, Hurricane Ian, last year. More than 150 people died in that storm. This time, with Adalia, there have been three deaths linked to the hurricane, but What really spared so many was the path of the storm. It moved through what's known as Florida's nature coast, a region called the Big Bend, where Florida's panhandle turns into the peninsula. It's a sprawling agricultural part of the state full of wetlands and cattle farms. It's millions of acres of undeveloped land. So while the storm did buzzsaw its way through deep forests, it avoided heavily populated areas. At a briefing, Governor Ron DeSantis said, it appears as if those who um, were in impacted areas, really did heed officials' warnings to evacuate. DeSantis said search and rescue teams are finding that most homes they
2: visit are empty. They've probably uh, gone through about 70 percent of the areas that they need to to be able uh, to check for people that are in distress. And, um, you know, so far, all, all signs have been positive.
11: Okay, so they're starting to clean up and they're continuing rescue efforts. What else are officials keeping an eye on? flooding
13: the storm dumped a tremendous amount of rain from florida to the carolinas some rain bands behind nadalia are expected today so peak flood levels may yet to be realized and It will take time for some of the rain that's already fallen to make its way through rivers and the hurricane is coinciding with a rare supermoon which is expected to further raise tides so a mix of storm surge and high tide could prove deadly so officials are urging residents to stay inside or to be extra careful on top of that the big focus is bringing power back of course driving on these major roads and and finding many non-working traffic signals is challenging and dangerous. So that lack of power is making everything here pretty chaotic right now. NPR's
10: Bobby Allen in Lake City, Florida.
11: Bobby, thanks. Thanks, A.
10: The University of North Carolina student newspaper published a particularly striking front page yesterday. It captured text messages that students sent and received as a shooting took place on campus Monday.
15: Can you hear any gunshots? Please stay safe. Please send literally anything. Please stay there where you're safe. Are you safe right now? I heard someone got shot. Can you call me? Are you okay?
10: Emmy Martin is editor-in-chief of the paper at the Daily Tar Heel. Students sent screenshots of their panic texts to the paper.
15: We wanted everyone on campus and beyond our campus to feel like they were seeing the true events of that day in our coverage.
10: The shooting at UNC followed another shooting Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where a white gunman killed three black people at a Dollar General store after first trying to enter the campus of Edward Waters University, an historically black institution. We wanted to hear from college students about how they feel being on campus after these events. So NPR's Allie Schweitzer and Destiny Adams dropped by Howard University here in Washington, D.C.
8: It's the
9: fall organization fair at Howard in the quad known as the Yard. I'm having fun. You having fun? Students are strolling and stopping by booths to pick up information about campus groups and social clubs. Madison Patterson is in her junior year at Howard. I ask her if the shooting in Jacksonville makes her worried something similar could happen here.
5: I think at Howard specifically, not really, but based on like all the racially motivated shootings happening in this country, Howard is that could definitely be a target but
9: on campus I feel pretty safe. There have been three bomb threats at Howard since last year the most recent in February on the last day of Black History Month. Patterson is with her friend Sandra Hoogan, a senior she says she's not that worried about a shooter coming on campus. I feel like it would kinda be not out of worldly but it would kinda be crazy to have campus shooting on a black campus surrounded by a black community. So that's what kinda doesn't help us but you know yeah, <laughs> feel an extra layer of security. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Howard officials say they're stepping up security, but it's not specifically related to the threat of mass shootings. There were two big brawls near campus recently, and in one case, a student was stabbed non-fatally outside a dorm. In response, university administrators say they plan to install 1,000 new security cameras. Brady Die is a senior. I ask if cameras help him feel more safe.
7: Not really, because um, quite honestly, like. A camera what is that really gonna do but if somebody is like determined to try and harm students I'm not really sure you know how many cameras are gonna be able to prevent that.
9: Di says he grew up doing active shooter drills as a student in Texas. He says the threat of gun violence is always looming.
7: I feel like as Americans that's just something we live with as a reality it's a horrible reality but if I allow that to, to you know affect my life I'm never gonna be able to live you know the way I
9: just want to live. Dye says the best thing he and his fellow students can do is push elected officials to take action against gun violence. Ali Schweitzer, NPR News, Washington.
10: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition. More than 800,000 federal student loan borrowers have recently found their balances wiped away as the Department of Education erases the debts of people who've been in repayment for at least 20 years. It's 720.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
11: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
10: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Wildlife officials say help is on the way for swans that are trapped in Salisbury Pond in Worcester. Residents say a swan and three of its young have been trapped there for days. Mass Wildlife and the Animal Rescue League are expected to try and rescue them as early as today. City officials say they're in contact with researchers about ways to prevent similar incidents in the future. Sunny today with a high near 74. It could get a bit windy. Clear tonight and a low around 55. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 72. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Martinez.
17: And I'm Leila Faldil. In the first half of this year, nearly 2,000 people drowned at sea, trying to smuggle themselves from the Middle East and North Africa to Europe. One of the most tragic incidents was a rickety fishing boat packed with more than 700 people en route to Italy. With the Greek Coast Guard watching, it sank and hundreds drowned. That story of migration, of searching for a better life, it's a story Ghali knows well.
18: I have friends, friends of friends who died in the Mediterranean Sea. Like, I'm lucky that I was born in Milan and my, my mom came with the airplane. But since you are an immigrant, it's normal to know these stories and to bring these stories with you for your entire life.
17: Gali is a rapper and a major star in Italy. His parents were Tunisian immigrants, and that thirst for a better life he was talking about is at the heart of one of his biggest hits, Mama.
18: During a vacation in Tunisia during the summer, I was telling stories about Italy, you know, with my cousin talking about the clubs and the life in Milan. Like, he started to be so obsessed in those days about Italy. One day I woke up. Uh, and he wasn't there. Where is Khalil, where is Khalil, where is Khalil? And uh, he came back one day after, dirty.
17: His cousin had tried and failed to sneak onto a vessel, headed to Italy.
18: So the song Mama talks about my answer to this, no?
17: (laughs) His lyrics speak to the sea, calling on it not to be too rough. I beg you, he says, carry him to safety.
18: So a lot of people try to come, but they don't know once you arrive there, you're going to struggle, you're going to leave the streets, you're going to do bad choices to get money because it's so expensive. In the song I say he's dreaming clothes, he's dreaming uh, another life, He's dreaming, uh, but he doesn't know that probably he's going to experience the street and all the bad things mm. that the streets will give you. Hey,
17: You um, recently donated an inflatable boat to Mediterranean Saving Humans. It's an Italian nonprofit that saves people at sea when they make that decision to take that journey in the Mediterranean to try to get to Italy. If you could talk about making that decision to start working with this organization and and the boat that you donated.
18: I, I started to ask myself, how can I help them for real in modo concreto in, in a concrete, uh, practical way.
17: That's NPR's William Trope. He's helping us interpret since English is Rali's fourth language. He raps in Italian mixed with Arabic and French.
18: I ask them what they really need in this moment. Because the government is not helping them, it's not a subject that in Italy a lot of people talk about. And, and they do everything by themselves. Like they use their money and they use their time.
17: But it's also not only people don't talk, it's a very controversial topic. That ship has never been at sea, right?
18: No, not yet, yes, because the government decided to. Ordina di non, uh, salvare le persone in mare. The, the government uh, decided to order not to find people at sea. And to not save them. Not to save. <laughs> at all, yeah.
17: <laughs> you called the boat Beina after one of your songs. Why'd you choose that name?
18: Beina means it's clear, so. When you see that boat, it's clear that you're going to be saved.
17: Migration is a lightning rod issue in Italy, like it is here in the U.S., and the current far-right government ran on an anti-migration platform. One of their new laws stops nonprofits like Mediterranean from saving people at sea, a law immigration advocates in Italy call unjust.
18: The way I'm trying to help Mediterranean is before the politics decision. It's just because I think that people uh, have... The right to be saved from the sea, from the water. I have the chance to to help in that moment, and then some. Uh, I don't. I don't know what to do when when people are on the land. You know.
17: Ghali says he's using his platform because he knows what's at stake when people make that decision—the decision to leave their home country and start over.
18: There are multiple reasons why someone immigrate. You know. Mm-hmm. It's not only war, it's not only bombs. When you don't see a future, when you understand in a really young age that you cannot dream and that that is not possibility for you, that's still a war, you know? You need to escape. I didn't live that. I didn't experience the immigration, you know? Mm-hmm. But my mom did, my and my father did, my friends did. And I experienced the feeling of being the first generation of immigrants in in italy i experienced being uh, one of the four foreign kids in a school this is why i say that's my story
17: if you're born in italy but your parents are immigrants you don't get nationality automatically it wasn't until Rani was 18 that he got citizenship do you feel italian
18: yes of course yeah i'm italian as I'm so Italian. I'm Italian with Tunisian parents.
17: And do you think other Italians see you that way?
18: Yeah, a lot of lot of Italians see me Italian. Yes. They, yeah. And but a mm, lot of them see me not Italian. But w- with me now, I'm in a privileged position. You know, my worry is when other people with no the possibilities that I have receive this type of treatment. You know.
17: I mean, did you have a Rani growing up? Like, did you have somebody that you looked at that was from immigrant parents who was famous and respected in Italy when you were a little boy?
18: No, 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 no. No, this is a new story. Well,
17: Ghani, thank you so much for talking to us about your music and your
18: messages. Thank you so much.
17: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next. Then, coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, political scientists at a big convention in Los Angeles are facing a real-world example of the social issues they study with the workers at their hotels on strike. It's 7.29. Use the WBOR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Idalia is blamed for at least three deaths after coming ashore along Florida's northern Gulf Coast. It made landfall in the state's Big Bend area, where the peninsula meets the Panhandle, as a Category 3 storm. Wind and water damage to homes, roads, and power lines is reported in areas such as Cedar Key and Crystal River. Belan Thomas says Idalia's winds collapsed the roof of her house in Perry.
9: The top of the roof just cave slapped in on me and my three kids and my grandson. My daughter is pregnant. She's five months pregnant, but she was, I was able to pull her out of it.
19: Idalia triggered severe flooding in Charleston, South Carolina. At the U.N., the Biden administration, Britain, Japan, and South Korea are calling on North Korea to halt its weapons negotiations with Russia. As Linda Fasulo reports, Moscow was seeking military assets from Pyongyang for its ongoing war with Ukraine.
13: U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield told reporters that Russia is negotiating potential agreements with North Korea for significant quantities and multiple types of munitions to be used against Ukraine. And she stressed that any Russian weapons agreement with Pyongyang would seriously violate U.N. Security Council resolutions, including those Moscow voted in favor of. The U.N. measures bar nations from procuring arms from North Korea.
19: This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Every summer, there are people in Massachusetts who die because of the heat. But public health experts don't know exactly how many people die from complications tied to the heat, such as heart attacks or kidney failure. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports that's because so-called heat-related deaths are hard to measure.
20: It's fairly simple to count deaths where heat is the primary cause, like in the case of a landscaper who collapses during a heat wave. But counting deaths where heat may be a secondary or contributing factor is challenging. That's largely because the country lacks uniform standards for determining what a heat-related death is. Caleb Dresser leads the Climate Resilient Clinics Project at Harvard.
21: Heat-related mortality is a really important metric for us to be keeping
20: track of as a society. Figuring this out, Dresser says, could help communities and government officials better protect people as climate change makes heat waves more intense. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: The head of transportation for Boston Public Schools says he's feeling more confident about bus service this school year. Students head back next week. Dan Rosengard told WBUR's Radio Boston that the district's bus routes are fully staffed for the first time since the pandemic began. He credits a program started last year that pays for job applicants to get training for their commercial driver's licenses.
21: Previously, drivers needed to come in already with that credential. This allowed us to expand our hiring pool and allowed us to provide a viable career path for folks who may not have had the time or been able to afford the cost to get that certification on their own.
0: Rosengard says the district also has enough backup drivers to step in if a bus driver is sick or gets held up in traffic. A new section of the Green Line will shut down next month, and the city of Somerville isn't happy about it. The T says the branch to Union Square will close on September 18th to repair a bridge over the tracks. It'll stay closed for more than three weeks. Somerville leaders tell the Boston Globe they weren't given a heads-up from the T on the closure. They're worried the closure could affect the annual Fluff Festival, which draws thousands to Union Square. Tropical Storm Idalia is moving out to sea, but the effects of the storm are still being felt at Logan Airport. FlightAware reports more than two dozen flights in and out of Boston are delayed this morning. Another 12 have been canceled. Many of those are flights to Florida and the Carolinas. It's 734.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com.
0: The New England Revolution beat the New York Red Bulls 1-0 last night in Foxborough. The Revs' next game is Saturday at home against Austin FC. The Red Sox are off today after yesterday's 7-4 loss to the Astros. Boston will visit Kansas City tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s today under clear skies. Still clear tonight as it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, highs in the low 70s and sunny again. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station
16: and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including performing arts organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
11: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez
10: in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The Environmental Protection Agency has removed federal protections from most of America's wetlands. The rollback is a response to a Supreme Court decision that restricts the EPA's power to regulate waterways under the Clean Water Act. For more on what these changes mean, let's bring in Ariel Wittenberg of E&E News. That's a news outlet that focuses on energy and the environment. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's just go back and, and if you wouldn't mind, set the table and tell us what exactly did the Supreme Court decision say about what the EPA can and cannot do to protect wetlands from development?
15: Absolutely. Um, So this, as part of their decision in Sackett versus the United States and the five conservative justices ruled that Basically, the way we've been deciding which wetlands to protect is wrong and only wetlands that are practically part of bigger rivers and streams deserve protection. So the Biden administration does not want to be removing these protections, but they have to do it to comply with the court. And a really important point here is that this decision wipes out protections that have been in place since the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972. So a good point of comparison is that when the Trump administration rolled back wetlands a few years ago, even that rollback regulated some wetlands that are now no longer protected, thanks to the Supreme Court.
10: Hmm. Do you have a sense of how how much land area or how much area is affected by this? Um, We know that it's the majority
15: of wetlands Mm -hmm. in the United States. I mean, something that might surprise people is that scientifically speaking, many wetlands are not actually very wet or they're not wet a lot of the time. So you have wetlands that dry out during part of the year, like during the summer, or you have wetlands that might only be wet during high tide or after heavy rains, and none of those are protected anymore. Hmm. A lot of rivers and streams also do have wetlands right next to them or almost in them. So those are the wetlands that will still be protected. But the majority of wetlands are not really part of larger waterways. And so under this rule, even if there's just a foot of dry land between a swamp and a river, the swamp is not
10: protected anymore. Do we have a sense of who stands to gain from eliminating these wetlands protections? And also, of course, you want to know the other side of this. So what could happen to the ecosystem and to adjacent communities when these protections are removed? Absolutely.
15: Um, so obviously, environmental groups are not pleased um, with this. Uh, wetlands, of course, are important habitat for a lot of animals, but they also have considerable benefits to people. Um, they can act as filters and sponges and help remove pollution from water, and they also absorb floodwaters, which is obviously particularly important in this age of climate change. Um, home builders, developers, oil and gas industry, those are the folks who are, are winning here. Um, it people maybe don't realize but if you want to build something in federally protected wetlands you actually can still do it but you have to pay to restore wetlands that are similar nearby so that the ecosystem doesn't lose those benefits so when these areas are no longer protected we're going to be losing some of those functions of water filtration absorb and absorption because the developers you know, are just able to destroy these wetlands, those functions aren't being replaced anymore.
10: That is Ariel Wittenberg of ENE News. And once again, that's a news outlet that focuses on energy and the environment. Ariel, thanks so much for joining us and sharing this reporting with us. Absolutely.
11: It's a good time for federal student loan borrowers to go online and become reacquainted with their loans. Payments resume in October after a three-year pause for the pandemic, but lots of borrowers, hundreds of thousands of them, are finding out they do not have to pay. NPR's Corey Turner talked to some of them to learn why.
4: Can you see me? Let me see video. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you?
11: Nikki Miller started college back in the late
2: 90s and has about $8,000 left to be repaid on her student loans. She lives in Rochester, New York, and like many borrowers, is confused heading into October. She's looking for an affordable monthly payment, but doesn't want interest to blow up her balance.
4: I don't wanna pay A for another 20 years, and I don't understand why my balance would increase.
2: A few days ago, we spoke over Zoom to talk through her repayment questions. But when she logged into her account, she got kinda quiet, and then... My loans were forgiven. Wait.
4: The page is different.
2: <laughs> but you're just, So you're just looking now and your loans are gone?
4: They're forgiven.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you don't have any more questions.
4: I don't. I was wondering why the hell I couldn't get in, too. My loan balance is zero.
2: Nikki is one of more than 800,000 borrowers who have had their balances recently wiped away. And here's why. For years, borrowers should have had access to a special repayment plan that was meant to keep their payments affordable. The problem is, that plan was a mess. It was way too hard to get into and badly mismanaged by the U.S. Department of Education and its loan servicers. After years of complaints from borrowers and advocates, as well as an NPR investigation, the department promised last year to do a big retroactive Fix, And it turns out that fix is erasing the debts of borrowers like Nikki Miller who have been in repayment for at least 20 years. Another borrower, Kurt Panton, is almost there. He lives in Germany now with his wife and 10-month-old daughter, Pauline.
22: Here she is, Pauline. Yes. Oh my goodness. He's only
2: really seen grandma on video calls, so she's like, okay, this person does not look like grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Kurt took out loans to go to college and has been steady as a metronome repaying them. He's down to about $20,000. To figure out just how close he is to forgiveness, we hopped on Zoom a few days ago to go over his payment history. Like Nikki Miller, Kurt needs to be in repayment for 20 years, which is 240 monthly payments. So I'm at 2.33. So that means I have seven more months. Ah! I've never seen her react such a way to an Excel spreadsheet. If Pauline sounds more excited than her dad, it's because he doesn't quite believe that forgiveness is only seven months away. He already got his hopes up earlier this year before the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's big loan relief plan. Still, After almost 20 years in repayment, Kurt should be, by our math anyway, just a winter away from having his debts erased. I see, I think, a light at the end of the tunnel, and the tunnel's not that dark anymore, (laughs) you know? Kurt pauses a second, doing the math. Seven months from now would be March, his birthday month. Happy birthday to me, he laughs. No more student loans. Corey Turner, NPR News.
11: For the millions of borrowers who still have student loans when repayment starts in October, we want to hear your questions. We'll even have Corey back on the show to answer some of them. You can send them to npred at npr.org. That's n-p-r-e-d at n-p-r dot org. This is NPR News.
0: You're with WBWR on a Thursday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, 81-year-old Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze up yesterday while taking questions from reporters. It was the second such incident this summer, raising questions about his future in Congress. Sunny in mid-70s today with some gusty winds. Clear skies in mid-50s tonight, then tomorrow, low 70s and sunny again. It's 63 degrees in Boston.
6: WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com.
0: The Walpole Mall has a new owner. A team, including the Boston-based Wilder real estate firm, bought the shopping center for $72 million. That's significantly less than the mall was appraised for a decade ago. The Boston Business Journal reports the mall's new owners plan some major interior and exterior renovations. The delivery app DoorDash is tightening its security measures in Massachusetts to ensure underage people can't order alcohol. The Boston Globe reports the app will now block deliveries of booze to college campuses. DoorDash drivers will also need to take a compliance course if they want to deliver alcohol in the state. It's 744.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez.
11: Los Angeles is at the epicenter of a summer storm of labor unrest. More than 100,000 workers, from actors and screenwriters to hotel housekeepers, are on strike. As NPR's Daniel Kay reports, those labor actions pose a real-world political dilemma for political scientists, whose convention this Labor Day weekend is an affront to striking hotel workers.
23: It's a Thursday morning at the JW Marriott Hotel in downtown LA. The scene is a common one in the city this summer, workers wearing their brightly colored union t-shirts holding signs that read boycott in bold print. This Marriott is one of about 60 unionized hotels where workers have been without a contract since late June. They've been staging rolling strikes demanding higher wages to afford the high cost of living in L.A. Their union is asking conferences to boycott L.A. in solidarity. One of the big groups they've targeted, the American Political Science Association, also known as APSA, which is holding a meeting here this Labor Day weekend.
2: We asked them to cancel or relocate their event
6: online or someplace else.
23: That's Kurt Peterson, co-president of Unite Here Local 11, the union that represents some 15,000 hotel workers. They
6: can,
2: you know, mince words about what they did, but they're coming um, and we asked them not to do that.
23: So the 6,000 political scientists who normally attend APSA have a big political decision on their hands. The conference is an annual highlight, a place for them to share research and network for jobs. Under pressure from the union, APSA leaders moved all panels and events away from the JW Marriott to the nearby convention center. But lots of people will stay at hotels like the Marriott that are subject to strikes. And others will simply stay away.
6: I wouldn't be surprised if... uh Less than 3,000 people actually show up.
23: Peter Dreyer is a political science professor at Occidental College. He's talking inside the Marriott lobby as workers picket just outside.
6: Uh, I think there's going to be a significant
1: decline.
23: He won't be at the meeting this weekend. The Latino Caucus of Political Science has withdrawn from this year's conference as a sign of solidarity with the majority Latino hotel workers. Other groups are also urging their members not to attend. We really need to stay away from from APSA and from Los Angeles over Labor Day weekend. That's Erin Panetta, a professor of government at Smith College. She's skipping the conference, too. APSA didn't respond to requests for comment. Its executive council has said in statements that it's met union demands by moving events out of the JW Marriott and that canceling the conference entirely would be too costly. According to its website, the association still has room blocks at several hotels subject to strikes. Panetta says that means the burden is now falling on individual members to navigate the tricky network of picket lines. Now, you know, the membership is polarized. The The kind of battle lines are those who cross pickets and those who don't. Among those still traveling to L.A. is Jack Jung, a political science professor at the University of Kansas. Jung says the vast majority of faculty are sympathetic to the hotel workers, himself included.
12: I support them and I hope they get uh, the, the raise that they're, they're seeking, but I'm there.
23: Zhang says canceling the conference altogether would come at too big a cost to APSA financially and to his graduate students who rely on the event for networking. As of last week, hotel workers are calling for all conventions to boycott Los Angeles until the hotels meet their demands. And that'll likely take a while. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Los Angeles.
11: This is NPR News.
0: You're with WBUR On a Thursday morning, coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, officials in Arizona say hundreds of Native Americans there were targeted by scammers who promised to help with their alcohol addiction and build Medicaid for that service. It's 7.49.
24: The entire country saw fraud in COVID relief programs, but one city stands out, Chicago, where the local investigations are just ramping up.
20: The worries are, when will they stop looking? When is the cutoff? Am I safe?
24: And the likelihood of getting caught may come down to where you work. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. More than 70 people are dead in Johannesburg, South Africa, after a fire there broke out in a building that many people without homes were using for shelter. Idalia is now a tropical storm passing through the Carolinas after hitting Florida and Georgia and leaving many without power. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that the Drug Enforcement Agency change its marijuana policy and reclassify it as a less dangerous substance. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.
0: Clear skies in mid-70s today. Temperatures fall to the mid-50s tonight, then a sunny Friday tomorrow in the low 70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston.
10: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm e Martinez.
0: And I'm Michelle Martin. India's northern
10: city of Varanasi, also known as Benares, is among the oldest cities in the world. The city has always been welcoming to different faiths and cultures. With thousands of temples, it's the epicenter of Hinduism. Muslims also make up nearly 30% of the population. Now a religious dispute is testing its tradition of harmony, as reporter Sushmita Patuk found on a recent visit.
14: Scooters, pedestrians and cycle rickshaws jostle for space on the street in Varanasi. It leads to the city's most famous shrine, the Kashi Vishwanath Temple. Walking alongside Hindu pilgrims are Muslim men in white skull caps on their way to Friday prayers. Both sets of devotees are headed to the same place.
1: There is a mosque there, known as the Gyanwapi Mosque, and then next to the mosque is a temple.
14: Historian Michael Dodson describes how the Gyanwapi Mosque was built in the 17th century on the ruins of a Hindu temple. Today, a replica of the temple stands right by the mosque. For centuries, both structures have existed side by side, a shared space. But now, many Hindus want to reclaim the site. (laughs) What is ours must be returned to us, says Abhinav Chaturvedi, a Hindu who runs a shop nearby. The mosque is now at the center of a legal dispute. Hindu plaintiffs believe idols of deities still exist inside the mosque and an archaeological survey is underway. This should have happened much earlier, says Chaturvedi. The view is not uncommon among Varanasi residents, says Anand Matthew, a social activist and Catholic priest. This worries him.
22: A gradual change has been happening in the entire Varanasi city and all over because of the fundamentalistic ideology of the Hindutva supremacy.
14: Religious violence is not rare in India. In 1992, riots broke out after Hindus demolished a mosque. Political observers say Modi and his party have been pushing a Hindu nationalist agenda, fueling religious disputes. Modi's party denies that. To promote interfaith harmony, Matthew has been organizing a series of interreligious prayers in the city.
22: Varanasi is a confluence of multiple religions. There has been a history of joyful, peaceful coexistence and ordinary people want this peaceful coexistence.
14: There are plenty of examples of this coexistence. Hindus take part in religious processions during the Muslim month of Muharram. At the Muslim Sufi shrines dotting the city, most visitors are Hindu. Their livelihoods are also intertwined. In the handlooms of the famous Banaras silk saris. Weavers are mostly Muslim, whereas clients and wholesalers are largely Hindu. Haji Mukhtar Mahato is a leader of the weavers community. Muslims are traumatized by what is happening. We are worried, he says. His son, Ahmed Faisal, chimes in to say that while everyone is focused on the religious issue, Weavers in Varanasi are struggling to make ends
21: meet.
18: I request Indian politicians to focus on ensuring employment and livelihood instead of religious matters. Our interfaith culture is under attack, but it will live on.
14: In the past, Varanasi has shown resilience. In 2006, the situation was ripe for sectarian violence after a bomb blast at an ancient Hindu temple in the city. But the community came together to diffuse tensions says Vishwambar Nath Mishra, the head priest of that temple.
22: And the city was in peace, even after the bomb blasts. So I think uh, that was a litmus test for Banaras.
14: He hopes things continue to remain calm. At the joint entrance of the temple and mosque, police stand guard as archaeologists conduct their survey. A report is expected in the coming days mosque or temple, shopkeeper Surendra Kumar says it doesn't make a difference to ordinary people like him. Both are houses of God, he says. If only the public can accept that. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Varanasi, Northern India.
11: the Biden administration is proposing a major update to overtime law. If it's finalized, more than three and a half million more workers would become eligible for time and a half pay when they put in more than 40 hours a week. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley.
1: In announcing the proposed rule change, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue called the 40-hour workweek a cornerstone of workers' rights. But the law requiring overtime pay for anyone who works more than that has always included a carve-out for executive, administrative, and professional workers. Critics say that carve-out has been overused in recent years. Sharon Block, who runs the Center for Labor and Adjust Just Economy at Harvard Law School, says millions of workers in low-wage industries, such as retail and fast food, are denied over time, even though they're hardly earning executive-level paychecks.
8: People are given a title of manager or assistant manager. They're paid on a salary basis. But the work that they do isn't really executive, administrative, or professional.
1: Under the new proposed rule, anyone making less than about $55,000 a year would automatically be eligible for overtime, regardless of their title. The Obama administration tried to impose a similar rule, but was blocked by a federal judge weeks before leaving office. The Trump administration then wrote its own rule, saying workers can be denied overtime even if they make as little as $36,000. Block, who is a senior counselor to Obama's labor secretary, sees the proposed increase in the threshold as an important win for workers.
8: Elections have consequences, and you only have to look at this rule to see it in a very concrete way. Millions of people lost overtime protections when Trump was president, and when Biden administration finalizes this rule, millions of people will get that protection back.
1: The proposed Biden rule would also automatically raise the income threshold under which workers qualify for overtime every three years to keep pace with rising pay. The rule is likely to face legal and political challenges. David French is Senior Vice President of Government Relations at the National Retail Federation. This rule change would likely mean less opportunity for flexibility, less opportunity for training. I think it's a mistake to assume that every worker who's affected by this is going to appreciate the change. The Labor Department plans to draft a final overtime rule after seeking comments for the next 60 days. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. i Martinez.
0: And I'm Michelle Martin. The latest episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Today, a look at the races for the Boston City Council. The preliminary elections are in two weeks, and several incumbents face serious challenges. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We have a string of great summer days in store. Today, sunny in mid-70s. It falls to the mid-50s tonight. Then we end the week tomorrow with a sunny day in the low 70s. It'll be sunny this weekend with temperatures that may reach the mid-80s on Sunday and upper 80s on Labor day right now it's 63 degrees in boston and we're coming up on eight o'clock
4: i'm education reporter carrie young and this is 90.9 wbur fm boston 92.7 wbu tisbury and 89.1 wbuh brewster listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Tropical Storm Idalia is dumping rain on the Carolinas after killing three people and causing destruction in Georgia and Florida. It's Thursday, August 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinois. Coming up, officials in South Africa say more than 70 people died in a fire that ripped through a five-story building in Johannesburg used by unhoused people. Also this hour, the latest from the Central African nation of Gabon, where the president was removed from power after winning re-election.
25: Soldiers, including members of his own elite presidential guard, executed a takeover that was likely pre-planned and arrested him.
0: And Massachusetts researchers say the number of people who die annually from extreme heat is greatly underestimated.
26: There's no test of, you know, was this death clearly heat-related or not.
0: Sunny in 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR news in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Tropical storm Adalia has moved off the Atlantic coast after pounding the Carolinas with heavy downpours and powerful winds. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, at one point, the storm left more than 500,000 customers without power in Florida, Georgia and South Carolina.
13: When Adalia bore down on Florida's Big Bend region with 125 mile per hour winds, it ripped homes off their foundation and blanketed the rural area with lashing winds and torrential rain. But the storm at its peak strength moved through the remote woodsy swath of Florida, avoiding more populated areas like Tallahassee. The storm's worst case scenario never came to pass. As Adalia tore eastward, it pounded Georgia and the Carolinas with wind and rain, raising the specter of dangerous storm surge and flooding. That's something officials are still keeping an eye on. But the big focus now is restoring electricity to the hundreds of thousands left in the dark by the storm decimating power lines and other parts of the electricity grid across the southeast. Bobby Allen, in PR News, Lake City, Florida.
3: In South Africa, at least 73 people have been killed and dozens more injured today in Johannesburg. A fire ripped through a building known to be used by undocumented migrants as shelter. Michael Koloki has more.
2: The early morning fire occurred in a five-story building located in Johannesburg's central business district. The building is reported to have been previously abandoned and later reoccupied by homeless people. Firefighters who arrived at the scene extinguished the blaze and embarked on a search and rescue operation during which a number of people were evacuated from the building. Those injured were taken to nearby hospitals for treatment. South African authorities say it was not immediately clear what caused the fire and that investigations into the incident would be carried out by the country's police service. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi.
3: North Korea's military carried out drills rehearsing nuclear strikes and an occupation of South Korea. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports that the drills are in response to U.S. and South Korean exercises.
7: Late Wednesday, North Korea launched two short-range ballistic missiles simulating a tactical nuclear strike against the South's airfields and command centers. Those were part of larger drills overseen by leader Kim Jong-un on Tuesday involving fighting off a U.S. and South Korean attack, followed by a counterattack and seizure of all of South Korea's territory.
3: NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. Military coup leaders in Gabon have named a transitional leader to the Central African country. Army officers seized power yesterday, rejecting contested presidential election results. The deposed president, Ali Bongo, appeared in a video in detainment at his home, calling on citizens for support. Bongo and his family were in power for more than than 50 years. The United Nations Secretary General has condemned the coup. You're listening to NPR News.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. By this time tomorrow, the Sumner Tunnel will be open again. The link between East Boston and downtown has been closed since July 5th. WBOR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports construction crews are putting their final touches on the work. For nearly two months, crews have been working around the clock to complete a repair phase of the tunnel focused on the structure's ceiling.
5: During a tour of the tunnel yesterday, Massachusetts Department of Transportation's Jonathan Gulliver said crews have completed their work.
6: Our contractors currently focused on the final cleanup, uh, which there's some of that going on behind us right now. They're mobilizing uh, their crews and their equipment from the tunnel over the uh, next 24 hours.
5: Gulliver said the Sumner will reopen to traffic by 5 a.m. Friday. For
0: 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. With the tunnel reopening tomorrow, the blue line of the T will no longer be free for riders. We should also note that the Sumner will be shut down again next year as part of the reconstruction project. There's a proposal to bring year-round commuter rail service to at least a small part of Cape Cod. The plan from state rep Dylan Fernandez would have trains run from South Station to Buzzards Bay. He's filed a bill to make that happen and says that's only phase one of his plan.
24: We also instruct DOT and MBTA to carry out a study to see what it looked like to extend commuter rail to the rest of the Cape on this side of the bridge, if you will. Regions that have rail in place, that need investment and need upgrades.
0: Fernandez says a 2021 Cape Rail study shows commuter rail service to Buzzards Bay would attract about 1,700 riders a day. More than 50,000 students are expected to enroll in Boston Public Schools this year. Superintendent Mary Skipper says it's the first time the district will reach that number since the start of the pandemic. WBUR's Max Larkin reports it's not just students who are coming back.
7: Skipper described the district's hiring as strong. She said that there are 134 unfilled teacher positions, but that's uncommonly low, actually, based on the last few years, and that the district will continue to try to fill those positions ahead of the start of school next week.
0: Skipper also says enrollment includes a 20 percent increase in multi learners. Red Sox Hall of Famer David Ortiz wants people to be careful about how they handle their personal information. Ortiz says he's a victim of extortion and fraud. He says someone hacked an old phone of his and used it to get access to his bank account. Ortiz says police are involved. It's 806.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJoblot.com.
0: The Red Sox are now six and a half games out of a wild card spot following yesterday's loss to the Astros. Boston fell to Houston seven to four. The Sox will visit the Kansas City Royals tomorrow. We start a long stretch of dry weather today. It'll be sunny and in the mid-70s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 50s, sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s, sunny and in the 80s for the holiday weekend. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
6: WBUR supporters include the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver
10: City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In South Africa, more than 70 people have died in a fire in downtown Johannesburg. Authorities who are still looking for a cause say that that death toll is expected to rise. Firefighters have extinguished the blaze, but tearful relatives have now gathered outside the charred remains of the building in hopes of finding loved ones who might have survived. Kate Bartlett has been following this for us from Johannesburg, and she's with us on the line now. Kate, thank you so much for being here.
27: Good morning, Michelle.
10: So what have authorities said so far about the circumstances of this fire?
27: Well, the fire broke out in a five-story building in the early hours of this morning in Johannesburg's central business district. The death toll has been rising all morning and is expected to continue to do so as they find bodies in the charred remains of the building. The building has been absolutely gutted, And media reports say, you know, there were terrible scenes of people throwing themselves out of the windows to escape the fire, and some of them may have died because of that. And we're also learning that some of the victims were young children. Survivors have been taken to hospitals, but anxious relatives have been um, outside the building site looking for loved ones,
10: unsure if they are
27: dead or alive. And authorities say they're still investigating the exact
10: cause of the blaze. So, Kate, this may be obvious to those who are there, but but why why is the death toll so high? Have authorities said anything about that? Yes.
27: So it appears it broke out in what South Africans call a hijacked building, um, possibly a building with a couple of hundred people living there. In downtown Johannesburg, um, by the way, most businesses have long moved out of the so-called CBD into the suburbs. There are lots of empty, derelict buildings, uh, abandoned buildings. And many of these are being squatted in, often by foreign migrants who come to Johannesburg uh, seeking a better life. And authorities said it seems squatters set up makeshift sort of shacks within the building to partition it which would have been highly flammable, you know, wood and cardboard and things like that. And these buildings don't usually have electricity connections, um, but sometimes people use sort of illegal connections or they could also have been using candles or a fire inside um, to to light the building. So fires in what are called informal settlements are not that uncommon, but this is definitely the worst in Johannesburg's recent history.
10: So then the question becomes, could this have been prevented if the authorities know that these settlements exist? I mean, is there something that could have been done?
27: Look, questions are definitely going to be asked about why nothing has been done for years about these hijacked buildings, which pose an obvious fire risk. I'm seeing reports that this building was owned by the city of Johannesburg, but had been abandoned a while ago. And there have been several tragedies in the last year, many blamed on municipal negligence, including the deaths of 21 young people who were drinking underage at a tavern in the Eastern Cape and died of um, asphyxiation. Um, And then last month, a deadly blast tore through a street in central Johannesburg absolutely ripped up the tarmac, and that was blamed on a methane gas explosion underground. So, you know, critics say infrastructure is breaking down. Um, and some people are asking why, in Africa's most developed economy, millions of people still live in shacks. Housing for the poorest, they say, should have been built in the decades since apartheid, but that money has been lost to corruption.
10: That is Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Kate, thank you.
27: Thank you.
11: For the second time in five weeks, the top Republican in the Senate abruptly went
10: silent at a news conference. This time, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze briefly after a reporter in northern Kentucky asked whether he would run for re-election. He never answered that question, but these episodes, which have been largely unexplained, have raised concerns about an aging Congress, including in McConnell's home state.
11: Louisville Public Media's Sylvia Goodman is here to tell us more. Um, Sylvia, so what happened yesterday?
5: so senator mitch mcconnell spoke at an event up in covington kentucky which is right across the river from cincinnati for about 20 minutes Uh, and right afterwards he went to speak to a group of reporters they were asking questions and as he was about to answer he suddenly went silent he seemed unable to speak an aide stepped in tried repeating questions for him trying to keep things moving along All told, the senator was silent for about 30 seconds. He eventually did tell his aides that he was fine. He answered a couple more questions before he was led away. Uh, McConnell's office said later that he was feeling lightheaded, um, but that he'll be seeing a doctor before his next event. Uh, But this is the second time this has happened publicly. At the end of July, he had a really similar kind of scary moment on Capitol Hill while answering reporter questions.
11: Yeah, that was five weeks ago. Now, uh, other senators have also struggled with their health recently. I know California Senator Dianne Feinstein, 90 years old, or there have been calls for her to step down after she was absent for months, missed uh, dozens of votes. What's the mood like in Kentucky on McConnell?
5: So, earlier this month, I went to the annual Fancy Farm Political Picnic, which is out in rural western Kentucky. And this was right after that first episode. And many of the people I spoke with did bring up term limits. For example, Katima Smith-Willis said she thought it might be the only way to see more young people in Congress. We are the future. We're the next generation. If we don't get in these seats and take these seats, we're not going to have a good state to be in. So, definitely, we definitely need term limits. We need them. Expeditiously. And actually, our other U.S. Senator, Rand Paul, has proposed a constitutional amendment for congressional term limits before. Uh, a few years ago, he signed a pledge calling for no more than three terms for representatives and two terms for senators. Although, of course, Rand Paul has just started his third Senate term.
11: Now, do uh, McConnell's constituents and, and other political figures in Kentucky see his his long years of service as a benefit?
5: So McConnell was first elected to the Senate in 1984, and he's the longest serving party leader in Senate history. Uh, Many of the people I spoke with at that political picnic did thank McConnell for his service and said he'd done a lot of great things for Kentucky, but some of them were ready for a change. Here's John Schindelbauer, uh, who was there to support the Republican gubernatorial candidate.
7: I
11: appreciate some of the things he's done in his career, but we need somebody new.
7: So, yeah, I'm ready for him to ride off in the sunset.
5: And this is Gerald Morris, who usually votes for Democrats.
7: You know, after after a while,
13: you have to change tires on the car. After 40,000, they've been in there 40 years, so, you know... time for
5: change. If for whatever reason McConnell were to vacate his seat, then that change is already decided to some extent. Soon after he wins re-election, McConnell uh, advocated for a new state law, which took away a lot of the appointment power from the governor and gave it to the party of the vacating senator. uh, Although some Democrats are expecting legal challenges to that system.
11: Reminds me, I gotta go check the tread on my tires. Sylvia Goodman from Louisville Public Media. Sylvia, thanks.
10: Thank you. And here's a story that points to the advanced age of another politician. When the American president travels, every detail is carefully choreographed, right down to the stairs the commander-in-chief uses to get on and off Air Force One. Traditionally, it is a tall set of stairs trucked over to the plane's door, which is about 18 feet up from the tarmac. That has changed for President Biden. And PR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith explains.
4: The tall stairs are wobbly, and President Biden has stumbled on them more than once. In recent months, he has started routinely using a much shorter built-in set, with the distinct advantage of moving most of his ascent into Air Force One out of public view.
28: It's about nine steps, it's about eight feet in the air.
4: Kent Gray has worked for two Republican presidents and nine presidential campaigns. He's the guy who works out all the small details, making sure everything looks just right.
28: Very few people have noticed that he's mostly using the smaller stairs, but everybody's gonna notice if there's a really bad slip and fall down the tall air stairs.
4: Gray knows firsthand all about this. In 1996, Bob Dole was 73 years old and running for president. Gray helped set up the stage for an event in Chico, California.
28: And somehow, and nobody still knows how, Bob Dole decided to get right up on the front of the stage and kind of like fell through it.
4: It became a metaphor for the losing Dole campaign. When it comes to Biden and the short stairs, David Axelrod isn't convinced voters will care.
24: You don't measure presidents by their ability to navigate steps. You elect presidents based on their ability to navigate problems.
4: Axelrod was the chief strategist for former President Barack Obama, and he says he wouldn't be worried at all about re-election if Biden were 15 or 20 years younger. But he's 80 years old, and the stairs hit at Biden's greatest weakness among voters.
24: It's not a secret that the questions that people have mostly go to age, so anything that
6: underscores that point is problematical. On the other hand, It would be more problematical if he were you know injured on the steps of his plane
4: npr reviewed available photographs of president biden and the majority of instances of biden using the short stairs have been since june when he tripped over a sandbag and fell on stage at the air force academy graduation the white house won't say much about the stairs other than there are a series of factors that go into which set he uses But Biden's switch to the small stairs sets him apart from his predecessors. Obama used the internal stairs so seldom that when the tall stairs weren't there when he landed in China in 2016, it set off a minor international incident. Former President Donald Trump used the short stairs more than Obama. But Gray, who did event planning work for him, says it was often on particularly windy days.
28: Just because his hair would get messed up and it would take, you know, 10 minutes to get it put back the way he wanted it.
4: Jay Olshansky is a professor who specializes in aging at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He sees this as an optics issue, not a matter of fitness for office.
6: If President Biden is adjusting his normal pattern of moving from point A to point B to lower his risk of falling, yeah, sure, that's exactly what he should be doing. That's what all of us should be doing to protect ourselves
19: as we get older.
4: When Biden is asked about his age, he often says, watch me. And last week, while he was on vacation, he twice went to Pilates and spin classes at a fitness studio called Peladog, And then he boarded Air Force One to return to Washington using the short stairs. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. You're starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we visit the city of Perry, Florida to get a sense of the destruction caused yesterday by then Hurricane Adalia. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact
8: in a changing world. slash MSAE.
26: Long after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded in passing his massive judicial reform law, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still protesting what they see as a threat to Israeli democracy and their personal freedom. Now those protests are including the rights of Arab Israelis too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: There are two WBUR community listening sessions coming up next month. On September 5th, we'll be in Chelsea. On September 9th, we'll visit Lawrence. We want to hear from people in those communities about the key issues on their minds. Learn more and sign up at wbur.org slash events. Sunny today with a high near 74. It could get a bit windy. Clear tonight and a low around 55. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 72. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
10: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. This is the story of a scam that targeted some of this country's most vulnerable people. It was uncovered in Arizona, where dozens of operators are accused of setting up fake sober living homes as rehab facilities. Investigators say the scammers targeted people from Native tribes and defrauded taxpayers out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Alice Fordham with member station KUNM has this report.
29: The heat is just breaking after a sweltering day in Phoenix. In Madison Park, unhoused people are clustered in the scant shade of a few trees. Along paths seeping heat, two women are rolling a cart full of cold water bottles, snacks, and hygiene kits, giving them out to people living here.
21: Awesome, thank you, thanks
29: for to Reva Stewart and Jerry Long, both from the Navajo Nation, have been doing this since they noticed more native people sleeping out last year.
4: You guys doing okay?
29: As they check in, they ask about places people have been staying, take notes.
4: Um, somewhere in Mesa, it's um, 60, do you mind if I record that? Mm-hmm.
29: Because yeah. all of them have stories about residential facilities and clinics which promised them help getting sober. I sit on a bleacher and ask Wendell Smith what happened to him.
22: I want to get sober, at the same time I want to get back on my feet again too. But they say that they can help me with job and help me with this and that. I never see none of it.
29: He was living on the White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation when some people offered to fly him to Phoenix to live in a sober home and get the services he wanted. But when he got there, people were drinking in the home and the classes seemed sketchy.
22: It's just like the same curriculum over and over. Most of us just ended like up passing out in class.
29: He's ended up on the streets and drinking again.
22: I'm actually thinking about getting back in the program again, but, but like, I want something that actually can help me.
29: He can get back into a facility anytime he likes. Men cruise around the park at night, offering people a few dollars to come join their treatment center. But everyone's skeptical of what's on offer. Across the street from this park is a little store selling native arts, where Reva Stewart runs an activism operation out of a back room. What we do is
8: help find our native relatives that are, you know, subjected to these unregulated, sober living homes.
29: Stewart, the store manager, has been tracking a proliferation of sober living and rehab facilities that she says do much more harm than good. It started sometime last year. Across the street at the Phoenix Indian Medical Center, she started seeing white vans hanging around, their drivers talking to Native people at bus stops.
5: So she asked someone. I so said, can I ask you what that guy was asking you in that van? I said, I've been seeing him driving around. And he was like, yeah, he asked me if I needed a place to go
29: and he could get me a place to go. Then last year a cousin of hers back on the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, was approached by a similar van. She was struggling with alcoholism, and the driver offered her a drink and a place to go. When she sobered up, she was in Phoenix, and when she managed to contact her family, Stewart picked her up and heard she'd been taken to a place calling itself
5: a sober home. Things fell into place. This is why there's white vans. This
8: is what's going on. So once I started advocating for that, and putting it out there, this is what's going on, More people started telling me what was going on. And many of the
29: stories were tragic. A former patient, Raquel Moody, who is Hopi and White Mountain Apache, now works with Stewart. Her beloved cousin left the home they were in to get away from all the drinking there and died homeless shortly afterward. Sobriety was one thing that he really, really wanted. You know, he was a good guy. He was a funny guy, man. And, you know, when he... Has something serious, he wants, you know, he'll get it out, you know. And what he wanted was just to be sober. It took a while for stories of these homes to get wider attention. Some activists and officials say that's because the people involved are often transient and have substance abuse and mental health problems. But gradually, tribal leaders, then native politicians, then law enforcement, including the FBI, began raising the alarm and investigating until the scale of the problem and its financial incentives became clear.
23: Today, we are announcing actions against over 100 providers of behavioral health, residential, and outpatient treatment services that we have credible reason to believe have defrauded the state's Medicaid program of hundreds of millions of dollars.
29: Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs led a press conference in May. She said residential homes and clinics billed the state's Medicaid agency's American Indian Health Program for treatments that weren't adequately provided, while mostly native people were housed in places that often weren't safe or sober.
23: While we are still working to assess the scope of people affected, it may be in the thousands.
29: So far, there have been 45 indictments by the Arizona Attorney General's office, and more than 100 more facilities have been suspended. The FBI's investigation is ongoing, in tandem with state and tribal authorities. The state Medicaid agency is conducting an audit. The ripples of the fraud spread to tribal lands across the country. Recruiters work as far away as Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota. On the Navajo Nation, which spans Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, officials declared a public health state of emergency and launched an operation called Rainbow Bridge. Navajo cops went down to Phoenix and helped hundreds of Navajo people get into real rehab or come home. But Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch Says the aftermath of the fraud is long.
30: You hear really sad stories about relatives who go into these homes with an alcohol addiction and then they come out with a different
27: kind of an addiction, or they decease in the home based on other types of substance use.
29: In the end, people who were in the homes, plus officials and folks who run legitimate facilities, agree this scam wouldn't have been so easy if there were more options for treatment on tribal lands. In a 2021 government survey, 29% of the native population was found to need substance use treatment higher than any other group, but only about 5% received any help. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren says something has to change.
21: It just really uh, breaks my heart, really does break my heart. And one of my goals is to open up facilities near or on Navajo that can help our own people.
29: He tells me he was recently in a meeting with other tribal leaders and asked about this.
21: How many of us have a detox center or a place where people can rehabilitate themselves? Not one of us raised their hand. And I said, you know what, we all got to, what can we do to work together to build facilities that are geared toward helping our Indian people recover and heal?
29: For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. The scorching hot weather this summer throughout the southern U.S. and other parts of the world underscored the dire need to find a way to track deaths connected to heat. Massachusetts researchers are among those searching for an answer. It's 8-29. Coming to City Space on Monday, September 11th, Nia Grace, owner of Boston Hotspot Grace by Nia. She'll talk about her Seaport Supper Club and she'll Hear a taste from the menu. Tickets are at slash events.
6: Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition.
0: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR.
24: You know, my favorite car ever. ...was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable.
6: Favored or not,
8: your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Damage assessments are underway along Florida's northern Gulf Coast, where Hurricane Idalia caused widespread damage and flooding. At least three deaths are blamed on the storm, which made landfall in the state's Big Bend area as a Category 3 hurricane. Mike Pendergrast is the sheriff of Citrus County, which includes the city of Crystal River. He says not everyone evacuated ahead of the storm.
28: When the storm waters rose, these folks were cut off from land
11: and they had no ability whatsoever to go out there and, you know, pick themselves up and get through many feet of water. In some places, seven feet of storm surge was observed out there.
19: He says dozens of people had to be rescued after they became trapped by the storm surge. Italia caused flooding in the Carolinas as it moved to the northeast. Severe flooding occurred in Charleston, South Carolina. Strong winds and low humidity are prompting red flag warnings in Hawaii. The National Weather Service says conditions are conducive to wildfires with winds gusting to 50 miles per hour. Fires fanned by strong winds on Maui this month killed at least 115. A tentative deal has been reached to end a nearly two month strike by about 1,400 union workers in Pennsylvania at the largest train locomotive manufacturer in the U.S. This is NPR
0: News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. There will be a sea of purple flags on Boston Common today. They represent more than 22,000 people in Massachusetts who have died of drug overdoses since 2011. Joanne Peterson is the founder of the addiction and recovery support group Learn to Cope. She'll plant a flag today in honor of her late niece.
15: I had been to that vigil before in Boston, before they did the flags, but once they placed those flags and put a flag to an actual person. It's, it's just haunting, and it's a reminder that these are human beings.
0: Governor Healy will attend a flag-planting ceremony on the Common that begins in about 30 minutes. Other vigils are being held across the state, including in communities of Weston, Worcester, and Lynn. The Stockbridge-Munsee Band of Mohicans will soon be able to buy back some of their ancestral land in western Massachusetts. WBUR's Paulo Mora reports the group received a state grant intended to help communities prepare for climate change. The indigenous community was awarded more than $2 million to help purchase 350 acres of farmland
5: in Stockbridge. Shannon Hosley is the president of the stockbridge Munsee Band of Mohicans. She says climate change is everyone's issue and responsibility.
3: Indigenous communities do not believe that the land is inherent. We believe that it is our responsibility to be land stewards and to advocate for future generations.
5: The community plans to use indigenous traditional knowledge to conserve the area the state announced more than 31 million dollars
0: for climate resiliency projects. For 90.9, WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Boston officials are releasing a new proposal to help revitalize downtown. The plan from the Boston Planning and Development Agency includes streamlining building height restrictions and updating updating design guidelines. It also highlights areas that are good for new developments. Officials tell the Boston Globe they want public comment on the plan. A final proposal is expected to be done by October. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and
8: by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible
0: portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The New England Revolution's home unbeaten streak is up to six matches. The Revs topped the New York Red Bulls 1-0 last night. The Revs will host Austin FC on Saturday. The Red Sox are off today after yesterday's 7-4 loss to the Astros. The Sox will visit the Kansas City Royals tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s today under clear skies. Still clear tonight as it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, highs in the low 70s and sunny again. It's 64 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadyen and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whelan. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm
10: Ami Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The deposed president of the Central African Nation of Gabon is speaking out in a video from what appears to be house arrest.
26: I don't know what's going on. So I'm calling
22: you to make noise, to make noise, to make noise, really.
10: It's a dramatic turn of events for Ali Bongo, who was declared the winner of Gabon's disputed presidential election. This was hours before the military ousted him in favor of the head of the presidential guard. This is Africa's eighth coup since 2020, and we wondered if there is a through line here. So we called Christopher Formuno. He's a senior associate for Africa at the National Democratic Institute. It's an organization dedicated to supporting and strengthening democracies worldwide. Good morning. Thanks for joining us.
22: Thanks for having me, Michel.
10: Do we really consider Gabon a democracy? I mean, yes, it was civilian-led, albeit by the same family, you know, for decades now. But even having said that, are you you surprised by what happened?
22: I'm I'm surprised and, uh, to a large extent, pretty disappointed. Because in the last two, three decades, we've seen incremental progress in trying to consolidate democracy in many countries across Africa. And in the past three years, we've seen a lot of backsliding that's culminated in the military coups to which you referred. And Gabon just happens to be one more case of a country that was making some progress, albeit fought albeit, uh, in progress, but that is now being taken over by the military.
10: So you've called this backsliding. Do you have a, a theory about why? Why this and why now?
22: Obviously, every country context is different, uh, but there are three main threats that are beginning to come through in the coups that we've seen thus far. In the countries in the Sahel, such as Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger Republic, the pretext used by the military has been the inability of civilian-led governments to fight violent extremism in those countries. In the coastal countries, such as Gabon and Guinea-Conakry before that, The pretext used by the military was bad governance and issues, controversies around elections or constitutionalism and term limits. And then we have a third thread that's come out of countries such as Chad and Sudan, where it's just the old style thinking that only the military can guarantee stability in those countries. So we're going to have to tease these theories out, but they do differ from country to country.
10: Dee, it's hard to assess such things, but did you have a sense that there is alarm about this among, you know, c- civilians who would like to see their countries move toward more stable governance and more stable democratic governance?
22: Yes, indeed. There is some surprise because when you, when you look at Af- uh, studies done on uh, Africans' attachment to democracy, by organizations such as Afrobarometer that measure public opinion across the continent, an overwhelming majority of Africans aspire to living in democratic societies. So the desire, the demand for democracy is there. At the same time, some of these populations are very disappointed by the poor performance of civilian democratically elected leaders. So you have a bunch of, a sizable chunk of the population that feels squeezed in between poorly performing civilian leaders and on professional militaries that use any pretext they can find to then find themselves at the helm of power or in state houses.
10: And, and very briefly, it's such a complex question for such a short amount of time, but is there a role for foreign governments to play here, or could they do more harm than good by intervening?
22: No, I think that's the role, because Africa is part of the globe, and these things don't happen in isolation, and also because the world has become such a, a, a global village, and things that happen even in places that are geographically distant from the United States end up affecting us one way or the other. And it's important that military coups that undercut the principles of democracy that are one of the underpinnings of US foreign policy should draw everyone's attention because ultimately people are going to determine their partnerships with the United States based on the commitment that the United States has to foster these democratic principles.
10: Thank you so much. That's Christopher Fomunio of the National Democratic Institute. Thank you so much for sharing these insights with us.
22: Thanks for having me.
11: The city of Perry, Florida, was hit hard by Hurricane Adalia. As in other communities in the Big Bend part of the state, the storm knocked out power, flooded roads, damaged homes, and smashed businesses. After the winds and rain cleared last night, community members started counting up damages. And as WFSU's Regan McCarthy reports, neighbors came together to share a spirit of hope and togetherness.
30: In some parts of Perry, the sound of chainsaws is almost enough to drown out the usual singing of cicadas and tree frogs. Families, neighbors, and out-of-towners are coming together to clear roadways and a path to recovery. It took a tough hit, a very tough hit. Denise Mango says the aftermath of the storm looks bad, but she prefers to view things in a more positive light. The cup being half
10: full, you know, or about empty, so it's it's all in their perception of what life is the how they're going to handle their situation. But, I mean, as far as the community, if we can come together as a whole, we could do it.
30: And in a gas station parking lot where a plume of smoke carries the smell of barbecue, that's exactly what's happening.
15: That's that's, that's oh,
30: yeah. Highway 19 Gas & Grill is one of the only open stores the powers out and rather than waste the food that might spoil, workers are in the parking lot cooking up a free feast for the community. Others have brought by bags of charcoal or helped clear the parking lot of debris.
0: We work together. we we family here. We know everybody by name. We kiss the kids. We hug. We check on everybody. That's how we do it around here.
30: Mary Gramlin is helping to dish up to-go boxes for a growing line. She says in the 50 years she's lived in Perry, she's never seen a storm so devastating. Gremlin's co-worker, Shonda Palmer, says her house was damaged by the storm. Part of the roof lifted up, and one of the rooms flooded from the incoming rain. She doesn't have homeowner's insurance.
18: Most of this community don't. Unless they're paying a mortgage or a payment, we can't, I mean, you can't really afford that here. So, you know, it's just too hard. I mean, you, you barely make your bills.
30: In rural communities like this, it's not unusual for houses to be passed down through generations, meaning they're often owned outright. And since homeowners insurance is so expensive in Florida, people often choose not to carry it when it's not required. That can make recovery an even longer and more difficult process. One Palmer says she's not sure it can be done, but for her standing behind a grill, feeding her community feels like a good place to start. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Perry, Florida.
11: This is NPR News.
0: You're listening to WBMR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the Biden administration's plan to raise the threshold for who's eligible for overtime pay from about $36,000 a year to roughly $55,000. Sunny in mid-70s today with some gusty winds. Clear skies in mid-50s tonight, then tomorrow, low 70s and sunny again. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. And Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com.
0: The Boston City Council wants to allow more small food carts around the city. City councilors yesterday began exploring a plan to streamline the permitting process for hand-pushed carts. They say the current rules make it too expensive. The proposal would also set up designated areas for the food carts to operate. The former owner owner of the Rasta Pasta Pizzeria in Beverly has been sentenced to two years in federal prison for filing more than $600,000 in fraudulent applications for COVID relief. Federal prosecutors say 59-year-old Dana McIntyre used the funds for personal expenses, among them an alpaca farm in Vermont. He was also sentenced to three years probation. The airline Bermudaire begins flights this morning between Logan Airport and Bermuda. The big rollout will come later this year when the airline will start flying the route with planes with just 30 business-class seats. Those flights will start at $1,000 each way. It's 844.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Heat is the number one weather-related killer in the U.S. But even so, experts say that many heat deaths go uncounted. As part of our series with the New England News Collaborative called Beyond Normal, WBUR's Miriam Wasser looks at the challenge of tracking heat deaths and why doing so could be important for protecting our health on a warming planet.
20: Dr. Hilary Irons is an emergency department physician with UMass Memorial Health. I met her recently after a shift.
30: All right, so we're
20: going into the back part of the emergency department. On hot summer days, Irons is often on the front line of the climate crisis here in New England. She tells a story about a patient she treated a few years ago during a heat wave.
4: So what I can tell you is that it was a very warm and humid
23: day, and EMS brought in a patient who was found unconscious. The
20: patient, a woman in her mid-70s, had a history of heart disease and diabetes, and she took some medications to manage these conditions. Her son told Irons that the air conditioner in the apartment they shared was broken. But he said his mother seemed fine that morning when he left for work. When he got back that evening, however, she was laying on her bed, unresponsive. When she was brought into the emergency department, she had an elevated temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Irons says the woman died in the hospital a few hours later. The official cause of death was kidney failure. But... Did she also die because of the heat? It's hard to say for sure, but had it not been such a hot and humid day, she might have survived. Some deaths are obviously attributable to heat, Iron says. An athlete who collapses while exercising, or a construction worker who experiences heat stroke. In these examples, the person filling out a death certificate would probably list exposure to heat as the cause of death. But in many more cases, like the older woman in the ER, That attribution is complicated.
26: There's no test of, you know, was this death clearly heat-related or not.
20: Greg Willenius is a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health. He says there's no national standard for determining a heat-related death. Those are cases where heat is deemed to be a contributing factor, but not the primary cause of death.
26: So it becomes about inferring that from the available evidence, which is hard.
20: All six New England states have data about the number of heat-caused deaths. There are typically only a few each year. Some were able to pull numbers about heat-related deaths, though most are not actively tracking this. And without this information, it can be hard to know if community and government efforts to address heat are working. Francesca Domenici is a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public
8: Health. This information is absolutely crucial to understand whether or not specific public health intervention could be effective.
20: Heat poses a much greater risk to certain people, like older adults or the unhoused. That's why Dominici says if you know who is dying and where they're dying, you can create targeted interventions, like giving away air conditioning units. That's not to say New England states are ignoring the impact of heat. They all collect data about people who go to the hospital for heat-related problems. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health said that this was a more meaningful measure than heat-related mortality. Other public health experts disagree. They say it's not an either-or thing, and that if we want to protect everyone, we need to measure both hospitalizations and deaths. Eric Kleinenberg, who studies heat waves at New York University, says tracking heat-related deaths may be hard, but it's not impossible.
1: States like Massachusetts don't track heat deaths because they don't have to and because no one has really fought for them to do it.
20: Kleinenberg says other places in the country do it, either on individual death certificates or by using computer models. There is some debate about which method is better, but everyone seems to agree that as heat waves get more frequent and intense, finding a way to track these deaths could help save lives. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England all this week here on Morning Edition. You can also check out our coverage at WBUR.org. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on a fire that's killed at least 70 people in South Africa. And a look at how Russians feel about their country's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. It's 850.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org.
24: The entire country saw fraud in COVID relief programs, but one city stands out, Chicago, where the local investigations are just ramping up.
20: The worries are, when will they stop looking? When is the cutoff? Am I safe?
24: And the likelihood of getting caught may come down to where you work. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
8: Listen
0: today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. It'll be a day of assessing damage from Idalia. The tropical storm is now in the Atlantic after hitting Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. A federal judge found Rudy Giuliani liable for defaming two Georgia election workers for falsely claiming they tampered with votes in the 2020 election and the Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will reopen tomorrow morning after a two-month closure for construction. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
6: WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu.
0: Clear skies and mid-70s today, right now it's 64 degrees in Boston.
28: Do you work overtime, but no one ever gives you time and a half? I invite you to listen up.
8: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com.
28: I'm David Brancaccio. It's not a done deal yet, but the Biden administration is pushing to make many more people eligible for special overtime pay if they work long days or long weeks. The idea is to require companies to pay overtime for most people who earn less than $55,000 a year. The threshold's been $35,600 a year. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. The types of workers who'd become eligible for overtime
21: are mostly low to middle income workers, often in supervisory roles, says Peter Orazum, an economics professor at Iowa State University.
24: That usually ends up being, say, lower level supervisors in manufacturing, but also fast food or hospitality industries writ broad.
21: Orazum says those are exactly the same people who've been working long hours during the pandemic. One, because they've had to cover for the open positions employers haven't filled. And two, because many of those salaried workers currently aren't eligible for overtime.
24: And so there's an incentive for firms to perhaps overuse their salaried employees because it's less expensive.
21: If more workers qualified for overtime, some employers might reduce worker hours. That also could mean that new additional workers are hired to make up those hours.
11: So we might see an increase in employment.
21: That's Alex Colvin, Dean of Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. He says businesses might also raise base salaries above the proposed threshold of $55,000 a year.
6: Then I keep paying them a salary I don't have
11: to worry about over time. I'll just pay them the flat salary.
21: Either way, Colvin says businesses would have to pay more for labor. Several business groups say the proposed rule would increase costs for businesses at a time when they're still grappling with inflation and workers are hard to find. But Kate Bond... Research director with the Urban Institute says the rule could help smaller companies compete for workers.
23: If they are able to offer similar job quality because public policy mandates that, they may find that it's easier time recruiting workers.
21: Bond says smaller employers tend to have a harder time raising wages to attract good candidates. But if everyone has to pay people more, that can level the playing field.
23: And so it makes it easier for them potentially to hire if they know that all their competitors have to follow the same rules that they do.
21: In other words, having to pay out more overtime can help an employer fill positions they needed to fill anyway. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace.
8: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI.
28: The venerable Consumer Price Index is one guide to inflation. The very tapped-in team at the Federal Reserve also likes to watch a government number called the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. There's news just now that this PCE ticked up only slightly higher in July, an increase of two-tenths of a percent, excluding food and energy prices that tend to jump around. It was up 3.3 percent in a year. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is here with
8: more on the statistic. What does this PCE thing measure? It looks at prices consumers are paying for goods and services, but the PCE also covers money spent on behalf of consumers. So if you go to the doctor's office, it includes your copay plus if you have insurance, what your insurance company or Medicare or Medicaid pays. Also, the PCE can change as people substitute away from some goods and services toward others. So if, say, beef gets really expensive, people might start buying chicken instead.
28: All right. Versus the other thing, the consumer price index, which uses what?
8: The CPI measures the price of a fixed basket of goods and services. That basket is updated every year, David, but just not often enough to account for those substitutions I talked about. So the CPI tends to show more inflation than the PCE. When did the Fed switch its allegiance over to PCE? The CPI was the Fed's favorite before the year 2000. It switched over to the PCE because it's just a more comprehensive measure of inflation. It includes that substitution effect we talked about with consumers changing their buying habits when prices go up. And it's not just looking at what consumers spend. Specifically, the Fed likes the core PCE, which strips out food and energy prices, which can be volatile.
28: All right, economic teachable moments are specialty here. Nancy, thank you very much. Checking the market screens, Dow futures are up 151 points 4 tenths of a percent. S&P futures are up 2 tenths percent. Nasdaq futures up just slightly now. The US 10-year interest rate steady at the moment. The average 30-year fixed rate mortgage is down from a peak 10 days ago, still just above 7% using Mortgage News Daily's number. Crude oil up 1% now, just crossed 82.42 a barrel. It has become a daily occurrence in the month that ends today. A fresh piece of data showing China's economy is in deeper trouble. Today, it's factory activity down for five months straight in the world's second largest economy. Separately, one of China's biggest property developers announced record losses, one piece of a major crisis in that sector. Here's Nick Marsh, Asia business correspondent with our newsroom partners, the BBC.
25: Another month, another set of worrying figures in China. This time round, the numbers were fractionally better than expected, but ultimately they still show that demand for Chinese goods from abroad is poor. And for an economy that relies on exports, that's not good news. But there are deeper problems still. Since lifting tough zero-Covid restrictions at the end of last year, China's seen record low economic growth, record youth unemployment and falling prices. Worse still, the country's housing market, which used to be worth a third of China's entire wealth, has collapsed. It's made households poorer, and the post-pandemic spending boom, seen in most of the rest of the world, hasn't materialised. China's President Xi Jinping recently praised his economy's great resilience, and he's reluctant to grow it with reckless spending measures. But some observers are worried that without reforms to the country's highly centralised economy, China's recovery will be long and painful.
28: Nick Marsh with our editorial partners at the BBC. The big US hiring report for August, plus the household survey of unemployment is due tomorrow morning with implications for markets and all of our paychecks really. Catch the half hour marketplace later today with my colleague Kai Rizdahl on many public radio stations and on demand using these newfangled digital techniques I hear so much about. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. Here are from APM, American Public Media.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com.
26: Long after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded in passing his massive judicial reform law, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still protesting what they see as a threat to Israeli democracy and their personal freedom. Now those protests are including the rights of Arab Israelis too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.